Phil's going to get an email about this one when he gets back. <laughs> the lectionary, or the three-year cycle that we use to work our way through scripture during worship, is designed in part so that the selected readings are put into conversation with one another. Often they contain similar themes, or sometimes they even quote or reference one another directly. So, looking at this morning's selections was a real head-scratcher for me at first glance. Like, what do these stories have to do with one another? I mean, besides the fact that there's a dancing scene in both the reading from Samuel and the Gospel, there doesn't seem to be much else linking the two. So, I guess let's just start with the dancing. Maybe that will help us out. In the reading from the book of Samuel, David is seen dancing for joy in front of the Lord as the Ark of God is brought into Jerusalem and placed in the tent. This is a joyful dance, the kind of dance that can't be contained, the automatic physical response to being overcome with joy and gratitude. It's a celebration of God's faithfulness to David. But it's also a bit of a spectacle, a piece of political theater to make sure everyone knows that there's a new king in town. Saul is out and David's in. God's faithfulness to David is met with David's gratitude on the one hand and his lust for power and impure motives on the other. Can both of these things be true? Can these truths coexist? Can they find a home within a single person at the same time? I think King Herod might have something to tell us about that. The other dancing scene from this morning's readings take, takes place at Herod's birthday party. Just to recap, here's what's going on. People are starting to notice and talk about Jesus, and they are speculating about who he could be. Some say that he is John the Baptist raised from the dead. But Herod says, no way, I had that guy beheaded. But really, he was just in jail. Herod actually kind of liked John, or at least he thought he was righteous and holy. And he liked listening to John talk, even if he found him a bit confusing. But then John took it too far with the truth-telling and told Herod it wasn't right for him to marry his brother's wife. So Herod put him in jail. But he couldn't bring himself to have him killed, even though that's what Herodias, his wife-slash-sister-in-law, wanted. So all of this comes to a head at Herod's birthday party when he brings his daughter out to dance for his guests. And she does such a great job that he tells her in front of everyone that he will give her anything she asks for. She consults her mother, who of course tells her to demand the head of John the Baptist, and she does. Now, Herod is in a bit of a pickle here because he doesn't actually want John dead. But his hands are tied because he made a public oath in front of his guests that now he has to honor. And ultimately, Herod has John killed. But before we start feeling any sort of sympathy for King Herod, let's take a moment to consider what's really going on. Sure, it would be easy to say that King Herod isn't the real bad guy here. This is all Herodias doing. She wants to eliminate anything that stands between her and the power that comes with being married to Herod. She's had a vendetta against John ever since he told Herod not to marry her. But in the end, Herod is the one who orders John dead. So yes, there's a tension here between Herod's affection, if you can call it that, for John, 
and his desire to protect his public image. He, like David, holds two truths in tension with one another within himself. Okay, so clearly these two flawed leaders have in common that they are complex human beings with multiple allegiances and impure motives that cause them to sometimes do the right thing and sometimes not. But that can't be all we're looking at here because that's true of every single human being that's ever walked the face of the planet, including you and me. So if this isn't just a simple case study in the complexity of human nature and the way that faithfulness and sinfulness coexist within each one of us, then what is it? It's part of a larger narrative, a pattern of behavior that's been stuck on repeat since the beginning of our relationship with God. God is faithful to us. We try to be faithful to God, but our own self-interest and hunger for power make it hard for us, so we do the wrong thing, a lot, and we have a really hard time holding ourselves accountable for our behavior. We see this in Genesis. God's cre God creates human beings out of love, and of course we have to go out and to eat the one fruit that God tells us not to eat, then when God confronts us about it, what happens? Well, Adam blames Eve, and Eve blames the snake. We see it again in the crucifixion. Pontius Pilate tries to distance himself from the responsibility of killing Jesus, saying that the people have chosen Jesus, and he's just giving the people what they want. So like Pilate, Herod's hands are tied, right? He didn't have a choice? No. He did have a choice. Pontius Pilate had a choice. Adam and Eve had a choice. And we also have a choice. Now, were these great choices for Herod and Pilate? No. They were not always in their own best interest. They would have been costly and could have resulted in death. If not their physical death, at least a political one. But they did have a choice. They might be costly choices for us as well. These choices might mean that we have to give up some of our own wealth to pay reparations. They might mean that we have to give up our good reputation by acknowledging the wrongs committed by our own church against indigenous communities, particularly children. They might mean that we give up protecting people who abuse their power and exploit others, even if that means that we're implicated as well. These biblical characters had the choice to be faithful to God, to be faithful to the one who tells them the truth, to be faithful to what they know is right, but they didn't. And we don't always either. But in my opinion, the biggest problem here is not necessarily that they made the wrong choice. Of course, human beings do the wrong thing. That's kind of our thing. It's that they let themselves off the hook for doing it. 
they don't hold themselves accountable. And without accountability, there's no growth. There's no wisdom gained. There's no getting it right the next time. There's no transformation. And don't we still do this? Isn't it easy to convince ourselves that someone else is to blame for the problems that plague our world today? The secret Herodias pulling the strings behind the scenes while we pretend that our hands are tied? Until we are willing to look at ourselves and examine the ways in which we too make decisions that serve our own self-interest and hunger for power and contribute to the problems we see in the world around us, we can't break free of this cycle. But when we start to look inward and hold ourselves accountable both individually and communally, we're able to make a better choice the next time. And the time after that, and the time after that, and each time we grow more faithful to the one who has always remained faithful to us. And over time, we ourselves are transformed and, our, and over time, the world around us will start to look a little bit more like the dream that God has had for us since the beginning of time, where her faithfulness to us began. <laughs>